to the book of Joshua. It is not an editorial error. It is the same text that I read last week. But I'm going to preach on the text this evening, not merely an introduction, but these first words spoken by Lord, the Lord to Israel, uh, most likely, perhaps, penned by Samuel. Some of Joshua was most likely written by him, but there are events that take place that could not have been written by him because he was no longer alive. Uh, but Samuel, that great servant, prophet, judge, records for us the great words of God's faithfulness to his people. Of course, the author is none other than the Holy Spirit. Joshua chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This far the reading of God's word. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight. I pray all of this in your holy and precious name. Amen. I think I said this last week, it's a little bit difficult every time you begin a new book to know how to get your arms around it so that you can adhere to a sort of consistent theme throughout the book. There are themes within the Old Testament, and in my Bible survey class, one of the things that I teach these middle schoolers, and sometimes they're so interested in what I have to say, I'm a bit sarcastic there, it is showing a man how to fish and also catching him a fish. This is what the Bible says, but this is how you also ought to read and interpret the scriptures. Joshua is the continuation of the story that began in the book of Genesis. In those first five books, 
ending with the book of Deuteronomy where Moses has now gone. He is dead. Joshua being called by the Lord to be the next leader of Israel. A difficult job to be sure. The second pastor. He is called by the Lord to help Israel get over the Jordan and take dominion of that good, broad land. There are primarily two exhortations that we find here in the first nine verses. I'm going to focus on one of them tonight. I'll focus on the other when I'm back in the pulpit. The one that I want to focus on tonight is that exhortation to be strong and courageous. The other is to not let the book of the law depart from your mouth. That we are to be a people who not only have the law in our hearts, but in our mouths. Tonight, however, I want to focus on the exhortation we find repeated three times. Be strong and courageous. And so as we look at these nine verses, I want to focus on it in three headings. The first, a continued favor. A continued favor. Second, the promise of a wide land. And then thirdly, the response to that promise. Let's take up that first point this evening. A continued favor. Though Israel was no doubt going through a bit of a crisis, their great leader of 40 years is gone. And Joshua, though he was no kid, was new to the game, as it were, was called publicly by the Lord, confirmed by Moses himself, of which we read throughout the Pentateuch, has now taken the reins. And the continuity between Moses and Joshua is made possible because the Lord is the author of the great story of redemption. And so as Moses was given the title in honor of the servant of the Lord, of which Christ is called in the book of Isaiah, Joshua is also called the servant of the Lord. And every time your pastor or your elders are not behaving like servants of the Lord, you need to ask them why that is the case. It is right that they rule over you, but they are servant rulers. They are but men. And though God still calls men to rule and govern and guide and lead the church, they do so as under-shepherds. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 7, we see that title. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 5, Joshua is called the servant of the Lord. Not only that... But Joshua's very name means Yahweh saves. It was at one point Hosea, which means salvation, but Moses changes it to Joshua or Yeshua, Yahweh saves. His name fits his calling. Jesus himself named by his mother and father because he will deliver his people from their sins. The same name, Yeshua. Joshua was to be a commander, or was a commander in the military, and fought against the Amalekites and was used, as was Moses, in that battle against the Amalekites to give glory to God. This is the battle where Moses continually raised his arms. It was Joshua in the field of battle. God made it clear in Numbers chapter 27 to Moses that Joshua should be the one to lead Israel, the faithful spy of which I spoke last week. He had been called... 
and he had been gifted. And this is the way that callings work. God in his providence, in his glorious and bright designs, calls and equips. Now, he may not equip you always like you wish. Remember what Moses said when the Lord called him to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go? Well, Lord, I don't talk so well. And so the Lord in his patience said, well, you can take your brother. Moses actually spoke pretty well. (laughs) It was, in fact, fear. Can you imagine that kind of fear? Forty years in exile, having killed an Egyptian. This principle of continued favor, though, is essential if we are to understand the enduring faithfulness of God within the church. It is not our story. In fact, I love going to those old churches. When I was at GA this past summer, I went to 10th Pres in Philadelphia where the great James Montgomery Boyce once preached. And while I was there in that beautiful historic building that has stood for many generations, there were busts to the old ministers that labored there faithfully over the years. And these busts were not meant to honor those men primarily above the one who has orchestrated and designed many decades of faithful preaching in that sanctuary. It's God's legacy. And God is an expert at preserving his legacy even with weak and insufficient instruments. And so what we find as we go from Deuteronomy to Joshua, the death of the great leader to a new one, is a somewhat seamless transition grounded upon God's public favor and calling. And this was meant to do one thing, to inspire hope and confidence in Israel. It's one thing to search for a pastor when you have a little bit of run-up, right? The pastor's old, he's ready to retire, a search committee is formed, and then you pick somebody. But what if the pastor just dies? (laughs) My kids, (gasps) I'm not saying, that would actually have been a story for the ages if it had happened just then. (laughs) But what if the pastor dies? And he is at the pinnacle of his leadership Everyone is expecting Moses to be the one who leads Israel into the land of promise. In fact, we read at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses was actually full of life. Which is testimony to this, all our lives are measured by the Lord himself. He takes us when he wants to. God buries every saint. This is his providence. And as far as Israel was concerned, though Moses was 120, he died too young. And here comes Joshua. What's it going to be like, this new guy? Now, they knew him. He had been with them and faithful, but he was no Moses. But God made it clear to Israel, this is my guy. You follow him. And in this way, we must say this, that God is not cruel, nor is he careless in the way in which he leads and shepherds his people He tells us what we need to know, when we need to know it, and how to respond. And this is kindness. He is an expert teacher. He is a good father. And one of the advantages 
to God's sovereignty is he knows exactly what we need even when we do not like the way he does it. And so what is God teaching Israel? Well, what would he be teaching you? The question is, what is going to happen next? And the answer, before you know any of the details, is I don't know, but I know that God is in control and that he is good and he will make good on his promises. And so we stand upon that promise And we look out at the fog of war. We do not know what is going to happen, but we can look at it and go, I can't wait. Let's get it done. Let's go. Let's go over the Jordan. Let's go into that good and glorious land. We know that there are bunches of grapes that take more than one man to carry them. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, but there are also giants in that land. God's favor does not go away with the death of Moses. In fact, the glory of his favor is enhanced. Why? Because it is clear that the one who actually leads Israel, the one who leads the church then and now, is Christ Jesus himself. But the Lord uses means, doesn't he? He always has and he always will. For in order to redeem us fully from the wages of our sin, whom did he send? A man. A man like us in every way yet without sin, but not just a man. A God-man, but he had to be a man. He had to be like us. This, too, is a great testimony of God's continued favor. And so as Israel is preparing to pass, they are to remember the Lord's favor. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel, every place, the Lord says. And that leads me to my second point. Every place they walk has been given to them. I've said it, and I've used this illustration before, but it's sweet to me. That moment we closed on our house and I walked out into the yard... And yes, I know the bank owns it. (laughs) But I'm not paying rent. And I walk out in that yard and I go, it's mine. And then the next thought was, it's mine. (laughs) There is the blessing and there is the responsibility. This promise is glorious. That everywhere Israel walked, God was saying to them, if your foot steps upon it, it's yours. This was God's permission. It was his glorious gift. Every place, verse 3, that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. As I said to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea, which is the Mediterranean, the western border, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. North, south, west, east. This is the land that I am giving to you. It is yours. And it is a good land. It's got good bones, as we say. And I will be with you wherever you go. Now, right now, my parents were just visiting. I hope you got to see them this weekend. 
If you go into my parents' house, you go down in the basement, there are these shelves of things that they have collected over the years. And if you're anything like me, the longer you live, the more you collect. And it's much harder to get rid of things than it is to acquire things. Like when we go to their house, and every time we go to Georgia, I always end up with something because my dad is constantly trying to pawn stuff off to us. And sometimes I'm willing to take it, sometimes I'm not. But the car is always more full on the way home than when we went. And the justification for that is this. As you get older, you begin to think about the end of your life, your estate, your will. And what is going to happen to your kids when you go? And guess who gets to clean out the house when the original inhabitants are gone? I and my two sisters. And my dad says, I really don't want y'all to have to do that. Now, when Israel goes into the land, they are walking in the land of their inheritance. But guess what? The estate needs some cleaning. In order for it to be ready to move in to, they need to clean it out. And it isn't just a bunch of stuff that you got from Coles. There are animals in the basement. There's wild beasts. There's giants under the staircase. And it is their responsibility to go into that good and broad land and to actually make it good. And the way in which they will do that is by being the arm of God's righteousness against the pagan nations that had defiled that land for far too long. These are no noble savages. These are people who offered their children in the arms of molten hot gods in order to gain favor for a good harvest. These are the people that opened Planned Parenthood buildings. And they're in the land. And God says to Joshua, you need to get them out before you can live there in peace. Now last week I read from Calvin, and the great justification for that is that Israel in the Old Testament, being a unique nation in the dispensations of God's covenant, was the arm of his righteousness in the same way that Christ, through the church... And through the proclamation of the gospel is transforming the nations and bringing them under his lordship and reign. But what Joshua could not do because he was a mere man and what Israel could do because they were merely a nation of men, Christ would do through his death and burial and resurrection. Christ has put the wicked to flight. Satan has been cast down. And while he roams on earth, he is an enemy but his power is bound and he is limited. To lay hold of the land, to gain the inheritance, a concept that we are not unfamiliar with, there must be fighting. Now, not every fight in the book of Joshua was a hot war. In fact, the first battle was merely a worship service conducted every day of the week and seven times on the last day of the week, Saturday. We'll get to Jericho. How did the church, that is Israel, bring the walls of that great city down? They sang. 
They sang. And they sang loudly and they blew trumpets. And Christ himself took those walls down. Now there would be other battles in which swords would be drawn. And they would do battle against those nations. Blood would be shed, but all for one purpose. So that they may dwell in peace in that good land and not be hindered by the worship of idols. And this was their mission. That's why I've entitled this sermon series, The Trumpet and the Sword. It is through worship and through warfare, designated and outlined clearly by God, that they were to commit everything that did not honor God to destruction. There was no other way. The land had to be purified. They had to be purified if God were to come out of the tabernacle and live among them in peace. And so in verses 3 through 5, we see this. It's yours. Now take hold of it. Take hold of it. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. The promise of a wide, good land. And then in light of this promise, the exhortation. Now one of those exhortations is, do what I've asked you to do. Keep the law. Do not let the book of the law depart from your mouth. But three times we see in these first few verses, be strong and courageous. A repeated command is given here. Now, it is our part to listen to God, to believe, and to act. But the commands of God to faithfulness never occur in a cultural vacuum. It is easier to obey God around those who love him and fear him. But we are not promised, nor are we given much opportunity in this life, to obey God in a non-hostile territory. There will always be those who do not like our allegiance to Christ. And so all acts of allegiance to Christ are by their very nature assault to the idolatry that is practiced in the world. If you shine your light, the darkness will endeavor to snuff it out. And so though they were to lay hold of that inheritance, it would be through conflict. And if there is anything that you need to be told on the eve of battle, it is what? Be strong and courageous. Two simple exhortations here. Be strong and courageous. How? How is it the saint of God is made strong and is given courage? Well, this command, like any command, is never what I would call a naked command. It is always built upon something just as the moral law was built upon the preface, for I am the Lord your God who led you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of sin and bondage. What does that little preface describe? Deliverance. And what does every Israelite and what should every Christian call to mind knowing that this is our history? What should we recall when God says, out of Egypt, the plagues? The plagues are 
wonderful to read about because they are violent, they are epic, there's animals all over the place, there's blood, there's hail, there's insects. It is God's redeeming work writ large across the sky, across the universe. The sun goes black in Egypt while it shines over the people of Israel. How does that happen? Well, the modern-day atheist says, it either didn't happen, but I'm sure there's some natural explanation for that phenomenon. No, there's not. In the same way that when Joshua was fighting and the sun stopped. Does God endorse daylight savings time? I wonder. In light of that passage. I need to rethink what I said this morning. I don't know. Stopped. Why? Because Joshua said, Lord, we need to fight in the sun. Whoop. Stopped. Do you know what would happen to the universe if the sun stopped, if it was not God upholding it? I actually don't know. But I'm sure it's really, really bad, and there's some climatological disaster movie that's focused upon it, right? It stopped. And what do you think these little Israelite children grew up hearing? About the time mom and dad walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. Or when they got bread that came out of the sky. Or somehow quails just popped up from the ground. Or water came from a rock. What are all of those things? Miraculous interventions of God interrupting the ordinary path of nature to prove to his people, I have this. I've got you. I am good to these promises. I gave Abram and Sarai a child. I gave Jacob a child. I gave Isaac. I got it backwards. Babies in light of barrenness is the theme there. Miraculous children. And it's a recurring theme. The ground for God's command are the mighty and gracious acts throughout the history of Israel so that they can say... Yeah, he does have this. In fact, parents, when you're seeking to comfort your children because they're afraid, what do you help them recall? Not only God's grace, but I'm in the next room. I can be in here in less than five seconds if I need to be. I'm right here. Don't worry. And if you're a really good dad... I'm armed to the teeth. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I've got this. Don't be afraid. Be strong and be courageous. Why do we need to be told that? We see why God says it and the grounds for it, but why do we need to be told that? Because we often walk by sight and not by faith. <sighs> because as soon as David has killed Goliath, Israel's afraid of the next guy. As soon as God has done one mighty act, we forget and we say, can he do it again? You better believe he can. And he always does it in the face of people who struggle with doubt. Look at Thomas. Thomas says in his mind, there's this man standing in the room and he's having difficulty believing that is Jesus. Jesus could have said, all right, you're done. 
I don't need wimps like you. I need real men. You get out of here. You go find somebody else to follow. Instead, what does Jesus say? Dear Thomas, put your hands in my hands. Put your hands in my side. Why? What are the scars that Christ bore testimony of? Of his death upon the cross and the sure power of his resurrection. This is why when you are doubting, A, your salvation, B, God's plan for your life, and oftentimes these doubts are very personal and oftentimes they're kind of selfish. You know, they're very existential. What are we to remember? Well, the time that God built a parking lot, (laughs) right? Guys, I know that parking lot is not the walls of Jericho. But it's not unlike the walls of Jericho. It's within the same vein, the same theme. Don't doubt. And we will go to our graves wondering, I think I'm 99.9% sure I'm going to heaven, but I'm a little scared of dying. (laughs) There's that fear. And that is why God says it three times. And the grounds for this command is not an uncaring, cold God, but a God who is willing to give them the evidence that is required for those who doubt to be strong instead. We need to look and recount, right? Deuteronomy 6. Recount, recount, recount. Everywhere you go, that is why Moses says, let the law be in your mouth. It's often here for us, right? It's very rarely here. This means what? It's easily, readily accessible. And there is an enduring nature to this command. Because there will always be giants. And I guess we could go over the giants if we wanted to that are out there today. They're there. Sometimes they're corporate in nature, right? The giants that we face as a congregation. Maybe they're unjust laws. Maybe there are powers that seem far too great for us. Do you know what the Lord actually excels in when it comes to the weakness of the church and the perceived might of the world? He loves for this little David to take off the head of this big giant in such a way that we have to say, whoa, God did something incredible here. Christ hung naked upon a cross. And the whole world looked at him and said, what a shameful thing. And yet at that moment of great weakness, what was Christ doing? He was destroying the power of the devil and procuring favor for us before the Father. And so we are to be strong and courageous. To recount the mighty deeds of God. Verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. The answer is, yeah, you've told us this twice already in just this short little speech. Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid. In fact, it's actually repeated from the negative. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And for the Christian, that should be An incredible word of consolation to us. It should console our souls. 
that God is always with us. It is observably, readily, accessibly true to us in worship, but it is no less true when we leave this place. Wherever we go, Christ is with us. Wherever we walk, that is our inheritance. The fight belongs to God. He will give us the victory. And one day we will inherit this land. I cannot tell you exactly how or what it will look like. I don't know those new heavens, new earth details. None of us do. But I do know this. There will be singing. There will be much rejoicing. And it will be ours. And that is what the book of Joshua teaches us about God's covenant promises. Let's pray. Lord.